This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. I want to thank our sponsors, Mickey Fins, Marlboro PD Electric, Carolina Bank, Pepsi of Florence. New sponsors coming. Kind of a, um, a new iteration of No Stop Lights on the way uh, sooner than later. Don't want to give a date. I'm bad at giving dates and keeping dates. But, but very, very soon, you'll see an expanded roster of sponsors and, and a bit of a, I don't want to say an evolution of the podcast, a changing in, in, in what we do now and what we historically have done and, uh, and, and where we may head. I, I want to I break down something as, um, as precisely as I can, and it's all in the abstract. I mean, there, there's no, uh, the majority of what I do uh, when I discuss politics, and I'll tell Josh, our producer, young guy, leave yourself some wiggle room, you know, say about 1,000 or nearly 10,000 or somewhere in the neighborhood of 500. Never say 498 because there'll be a contrary report that says it's 492. And then Josh is, is corrected. So I've always uh, given some of these new guys, young guys who come along, give yourself a little wiggle room. I'm not saying mislead, and I'm not saying be dishonest. But, but you know, be inexact when you can, and, uh, and that gives you the ability to say, well, I mean, there are three reports out there that say X or Y or Z. One of the commentaries that I find concerning coming out of Washington is the, I mean, I think Americans very much understand um, the situation in Israel. I think America is, by and large, a Christian nation. I think the Judeo-Christian ethic has permeated American culture and society. I think I did a Facebook post a while back that the the wheel is the best invention in the history of mankind. Fire is probably its greatest discovery, but the Judeo-Christian ethic has probably established dignity and human rights and the advancement of mankind. Um, rights come from God, not from some dictator, monarch, king, uh, or you know some authoritarian figure. Um, but, but I think based on that, we understand that there's a role and responsibility that America has in Israel. Now, there will be varying responses. There will be varying comfort levels about what should be done, not be done, how involved, how not involved. SEAL Team 6 is on the ground in, in, uh, in Israel. I don't know. I'm not on SEAL Team 6. Nobody calls me to say what they're about to do or not. But, but there, 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 there seems to be a consensus amongst most Americans, and it's a little bit different than Ukraine. I mean, human butchering and barbarianism is the same, whether it's Ukraine or Israel. But I think the majority of Americans feel our safety and security are legitimately at risk in that part of the world. Fanatical Islam, uh, fanatical Islamic and fanatical jihadist don't just hate the Jews. They hate those who ascribe to the Judeo-Christian ethic. Therefore, um, we are, I, I guess, infidels and must be dealt with accordingly. Never met, never read the Quran. I've read summaries of the Quran, and some disagree uh, with others. But, but you know, th- there, there's an understandable and, and identifiable threat there. I mean, to me, it's fanatical Islamic jihadist. I mean, that, that, that is the genuine Hamas and Hezbollah are motivated by their belief that martyrdom leads to, you know, rewards in heaven. And if you take out Americans and take out Jews, there are more rewards in heaven. Um, that's, that's quantifiable. 
I mean, that it's, it's, we remember planes flying into buildings. We remember, um, watching, I didn't watch this cause I'm weak. So we remember watching jihadists cut the heads of Western reporters. I mean, barbaric and just horrific and hard to understand and fathom and comprehend that one human being could you know, kind of hate another human being, especially in the name of some, I don't know, a warped, distorted view of religion. But but it's interesting some of the narrative out of Washington now says, and I've watched several people that I pay attention to that know what they're talking about say, yeah, I mean, we've got the situation in Ukraine, uh, you know, nuclear proliferation and the nuclear superpower that was the Soviet Union, uh, you know, the biblical God of Abraham, King David, um, obligation America has to Israel. But there's something else that we're not talking enough about that may be as legitimate a threat to our national security as the situation in Israel or uh, the geopolitical adversary that is China or the situation in Ukraine and expansionist Russia, and that is our inability to constrain our debt, our lack of discipline, our, our I don't know, just dereliction of duty when it comes to allowing Congress to pass CR after CR, uh, that's continuing resolutions, omnibus bills, not force Congress to appropriate via the constitutionally mandated way of which they are uh, to appropriate. And out of that comes, you know, $33 trillion of federal debt. And I want to talk about that for a second. And I want to try to not spin it, but, but address it in a way that I think is fair-minded. Uh, I am a partisan. You are a partisan. None of us are able to put our experiences and events that have led us to wherever we, it is we are. None of us are able to put that in our back pocket and be completely immune from those forces. I mean, that's just impossible. When somebody says, well, I'm checking that at the door. Uh, you check some of that at the door, but you still bring those events and experiences with you to whatever debate you're participating in. I started trying to understand how we got here. I mean, we're in a bad place. I think anybody, conservative or liberal, um, Democrat or Republican, has to believe that eventually you don't skate forever on trillion-dollar deficits, annual deficits. You just don't. I mean, when a deficit adds to the debt and the deficit gets to somewhere in the neighborhood of a trillion dollars, you don't skate on that. I mean, it's not like, you you know, your brother-in-law borrowed $20 and you're concerned he may have forgotten that he owes you the 20 bucks. I mean, I'm talking about trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that have led to rampant inflation and I believe are as legitimate a threat to national security as the situation in in Taiwan and China, the situation in Israel with Hamas and Hezbollah, and uh, Ukraine and, and, uh, and Russia. So I went back and looked, and I did the best I could. And I can't get in the weeds here because this is not a two-hour podcast and I'm not uh, an economist. But when you look at some of the major events that have led us into deficit spending, I mean, they're they fair debates. I mean, they're they very legitimate debates. I'm getting old. Let me get reading glasses here. It's fine print. Um, I mean, in 1929, who knew exactly how to deal with the market crash? I mean, what exactly needed to be the role of government in response to the market crash? Hell, I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows exactly what should have been done. We're, I mean, we have historians, economists, Ben Bernanke said he dealt with the, the market meltdown of 2007 and 8, 9 by what he learned from studying some of the, um, some of the summaries 
and some of the postmortems of the, the market crash in 1929. But nobody knows exactly where the good moves and where the bad moves and too much government, too little government. All I know is it created um, a need for someone to step in and intervene, and government did that in some way, shape, or form. But when you look at 1929 to 1941, and the reason I use 41 is kind of a line of demarcation, that's when we started, that's when we entered the Second World War. December 7, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. But when you look at the debt, the annual debt, excuse me, the, the, the aggregate debt, you know, year over year, in 1929, the debt was about $17 billion. In 1941, it was $49 billion. I mean, I'm not counting for, for inflation, and this does not account for inflation. I mean, this is in real numbers. Uh, you get to 1942, and you see a tremendous increase in defense spending. Somewhere between triple and quadrupled um, defense spending, and I think most Americans, conservative or liberal, will agree that that was action required of our government. Uh, you don't go to the local bank and say, hey, I want to fund this military to fight this war. I mean, that had to be done by government issuing debt. And the debt in 1942 was $72 billion. By the end of the Second World War, the debt had grown to $259 billion. Wow, from 72 in 1942 to 259 in World War II. Now, now that's pre the military-industrial complex. I, I doubt very many people would question whether that money was well spent or not because it led to the American empire. It led to the American century. It led to Bretton Woods and the agreement that the dollar would be the preferred currency around the world, the petrodollar and the United Nations and all these other organizations that America had such a hand in, and it led to America being the preeminent superpower for the balance of the 20th century. Uh, we'll get to the Cold War in just a second. But then if you go post-Second World War, I mean, obviously you got Cold War, you got recessions, you got Eisenhower's budget recessions, Korean War, and the boost to GDP, um, Eisenhower's second term, uh, the Fed raised rates, Bay of Pigs, JFK budgets, Cuban Missile Crisis, JFK killed. But then you get to LBJ and his war on poverty. And I mean, we had we had increases in debt, but it was not monumental. I mean, it was understandable. We're, we're, we're spending money that we don't have, and we are deficit spending, but it's not outrageous. And then you get to JFK and the war on poverty, um, which was in 1964. It still didn't go crazy. As much, I mean, it, in 1964, uh, and the war on poverty began, uh, the debt was $312 billion. At the end, uh, it was $427 billion. A lot of money. I'm not discounting it, dismissing it, said it doesn't matter. But, but though something happened in 1973 that, that I think changed the world. And I'm talking about spending. I'm not talking about war on poverty. I'm not talking about caring for poor people. I'm not talking about providing enough money for uh, the strongest military in the history of mankind. But in 1973, Nixon ended the gold standard the direct connection our money had to have to a tangible asset, uh, that being gold. And out of that came fiat currency. Uh, out of that came an increase in the debt from 1973 
$458 billion to uh, $998 billion. Let's go $1980, $908 billion. So in those seven years, we went from roughly $450 billion to, to nearly a trillion dollars, $908 trillion. And then you go to the Reagan years. Now, I'm a conservative. Reagan is probably my favorite president. When you combine some of the virtues and values and optimism that he exuded, uh, the presence he brought to the, to the White House, I was young and impressionable, didn't care about politics. I'm going to buy a tank of gas, $20, and a six-pack of beer. I'm good to go. But, but I do remember Reagan being optimistic, being a believer in American exceptionalism. Um, but when you really look at, you know, the Reagan record and honestly and accurately evaluate, the tax cuts combined with increased defense spending led to an enormous increase in our debt. When Reagan took office in 1981, the debt was $998 billion. That's roughly a trillion bucks. When Reagan left office in 1998, the debt was $2.6 trillion. So in the eight years of Ronald Reagan's presidency, the debt went from a trillion to $2.6 trillion. Is that conservative? Nah, you know, we remember some of the expanding of Medicaid under Reagan's watch. I mean, Ronald Reagan, the conservative, said, you know, unless America is going to stand idly by and watch people die in the streets who don't have health care, we're going to have to expand the roles of Medicaid. But I mean, that's being a pragmatist. That, that's having a contemporary view of American uh, politics. But there's no doubt when it comes to deficit spending, Ronald Reagan was not the most conservative soul to ever inhabit the, uh, the White House. Some of you don't like that. I respect that. I still stand by and support the Reagan presidency. He won the Cold War. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. I mean, that was a celebratory moment in, in American politics. Cost a lot of damn money, though. I mean, it cost a lot of money when you cut taxes and increase defense spending uh, the way he did. Then you go to the Clinton years. Now, I like to refer to these as the Clinton-Gingrich years. Yet you had a Democrat president uh, who was, I mean, he knew Bubba. I mean, he's from Arkansas. He had been around the block. He was a very capable and competent politician, a smart man. Um, and you got Gingrich, who was kind of the equal and opposite force. And, and out of those two came really curtailing spending. I mean, in all honesty, when Clinton gets there, the debt is $4.4 trillion. When Clinton leaves there, the debt is one, two, three, four. The debt is about $5.6 trillion. $1.2 trillion in added debt per annual deficits over eight years. I mean, that's in Washington. I mean, nowhere else in America is that uh, fiscally responsible. But in Washington, that ain't too shabby. Um, and you know the story of budget surpluses and running a running surplus in one of those years. But here's what really, really changed the world is 9-11. 9-11 in 2001 I guess you could argue forced George W. Bush and the American government to invest in ways they never had before. We saw enormous increases in defense spending. We saw the creation of government agencies. I'm thinking about Homeland Security, the Patriot Act, and all that came out enormously expensive. Um, I mean, the war on terror, uh, multiple trillions of dollars invested 
in the Middle East. Um, I think one of the greatest mistakes we've ever made in our nation's history is staying in the Middle East for as long as we did with the expectation that democracy would be embraced. But that's more of a philosophical, ideological um, argument. The, the reality is that when George W. Bush became president, the deficit, the debt, I'm sorry, the debt was $5.8 trillion. When he left, it was $10 trillion. So $5 trillion in deficit spending over eight years. But the last year of the Bush White House was the year that I want to pay closest attention to because that's when the world became familiar, or America at least. I don't know about some of the European and Asian countries, but America became familiar with the two words that I think have changed our lives forever, and that is quantitative easing. It allowed, maybe you could argue forced, but but it in, I encouraged, suggest, whatever. Um, but we had the bank crisis at the end of the Bush administration. Remember the uh, the great financial meltdown of 2007, 2008? I mean, I know we had war on terror. We had a second Iraq war. We had uh, Hurricane Katrina. We had... Um, you know, I mean, it's a lot of expensive things that happened during that period of time. Bush cut taxes, Republicans tend to, and then Bush fought the war on terror. Remember, Reagan cut taxes and Reagan uh, increased defense funding, spending. Bush cut taxes and fought a war on terror. But, but that, that, those are legitimate arguments. Those are very fair-minded debates that people could have agreements and disagreements. Should we have done this? Should we have done that? Should we have spent this or spent that? But it's just, it's, it's hard for me to fathom that anybody believed quantitative easing made any sense. And what quantitative easing did in the 21st century is what I think Nixon taking America off the gold standard did in 73. It allowed money to be fiat currency. And it led to rampant inflation. It led to a decline in the quality of life Americans can live when they're making, you know, 40000 50000 60000 $70,000 a year. If you're making a million dollars a year, I mean, inflation's still there, but it doesn't curtail your ability to provide for your family, educate your children, put food on the table, gas in the car, uh, an unexpected expense comes along. But, but I just think when we look at the history of our debt, that there are many legitimate debates to be had. The SNL crisis, crisis, the first Iraq war, second Iraq war, war on terror. But, but I, I just look at these two, and I look at those as central to why you saw such an acceleration of our debt because when we initiated quantitative easing, and quantitative easing is basically the government appropriating money it doesn't have, the Fed buying that money with money they don't have, but have the ability to create that currency out of thin air. I mean, that's a pretty crazy formula for the strongest nation man has ever known to fund its endeavors. I mean, when you really think about it, we are the preeminent superpower on the planet. Our financial livelihood is dependent upon government spending money it doesn't have, the Fed buying that debt with money they don't have, but the ability to quantitative ease and create that money out of thin air, buy those bonds, buy those mortgage-backed securities, buy that, that government debt, and quantitative easing, once, as I said, in 2008, the debt was $10 trillion, and you should see the acceleration after quantitative easing. I mean, there's no doubt you got about 
um, oil prices falling. You got Brexit. You got Congress raising the debt ceiling. You got the Trump tax cuts. You got trade wars. You got COVID. Uh, you got a recession. You got the American Rescue Plan. You got Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, there are a lot of philosophical, ideological issues that played into how the body politic performed and interacted with us as a, a culture and society. But, but I think it's hard to argue that quantitative easing has harmed the American public. I mean, it's aided and assisted Congress because they can shirk their responsibility. I mean, Congress does not have to appropriate if the feds don't stand by to buy debt that they issue because they spent money they don't have. You want to get Congress's ass back in gear? Stop with deficits. You want to stop with the feds saying, I'll be the buyer of last resort. Do away with quantitative easing. I mean, if Jerome Powell said today, we're not buying any more government debt, then Congress has to appropriate. They have to live within their means. Now, the public can still buy the debt. I mean, you know, I can buy bonds and T-bills and mortgage-backed security. You can buy. Wall Street can buy. London markets can buy. Foreign countries can buy. But, but the Fed has been incredibly activist in purchasing government debt, and that has allowed government to deficit spend annually that has led to a, a $33 trillion debt that most people can't get their arms around. You think you understand how much $33 trillion. You don't know your ass from third base because a trillion seconds ago was 32,000 years. Let me say that again. One trillion seconds ago, there was no Christ. That was 30, there was no saber-toothed tiger. It's 32, the new earth theorists believe there was no earth. That's one trillion seconds, not minutes, not hours, not days. One trillion seconds ago, and we've run up a tab in the local bar of $33 trillion. So since quantitative easing, here's what's happened. You ready? In 08, I said it was $10 trillion. In 09, $11.9 trillion. In 10, $13.5 trillion. In 11, $14.7 trillion. In 12, $16 trillion. In 13, $16.7 trillion in 14 17.8 trillion in 15 18.1 trillion in 19 uh, excuse me in 16 19.5 trillion in 2017 21 trillion in 2018 22 trillion in 2019 23 trillion and then we started really spending money in 2020 covid hits the government says another reason to intervene and get involved and liberals love this I mean, they love government intervening, involving, being intrusive, being activist, but it costs a lot of money. And the money you've got in your pocket is worth a, a smidgen of what it was worth before quantitative easing and taking America off the gold standard. So to get to 2020, we're at 26 trillion. In 2021, 28 trillion. In 2022, 31 trillion. And in 2023, we're knocking on the door of 30. $3 trillion in debt. So hell yeah, I care what happens in Israel. I'm absolutely nervous about Ukraine and Russia. Taiwan and China don't keep me up at night, but I understand the geopolitical reality and the problem that could uh, we could find ourselves in. But but the one thing we've got to do, if we're serious about national security, and forget the moral and ethic of it. I mean, I'm last year the boomer. We have, we have practiced child abuse on our kids and grandkids by not addressing uh, our spending, by our inability to live within our means or going to force our 
the people that we say we love the most, our kids and grandkids, they're going to live in a nation with less opportunity. The dollar is so devalued that you got to have nearly a wheelbarrow full of it, you know, to, to pay your rent, your, 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 your car payment, whatever it is, amenity in life that you enjoy. So, yes, I'm concerned about Israel. Yes, I'm concerned about Ukraine and Russia. Yes, I'm concerned about Taiwan and, and China. But I am more concerned about our inability to constrain spending and what permanent impact it eventually will have on the America that I grew up in. And I think, boomers, we have been as responsible as any generation in history about leaving the nation in a better place than we found it. You can't defend. I mean, I can defend a lot of these debates, but there is no way I can defend the greatest nation man has ever known spending $33 trillion it doesn't have and expecting somebody else to come to deal with it.